You're listening to Semper Bellum, a podcast about war. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Tristan. And as always, I'm joined by my wife and producer, Nikki. In this episode, we're going to be talking about infantry. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on Vietnam. We'll also talk about World War II, the war in Iraq, and, as usual, the war on drugs. Don't forget, we put together immersion guides for each episode. You can find those at our website. Uh, it's loveisafetish.com war. These guides have links, images, and other resources to enhance your listening experience. They're also living documents, so check back. We'll be updating them often as we go. And now, a content warning. War is the epitome of horror. This podcast will engage in thoughtful discussions of topics related to war to include descriptions of violence and evil. We highly recommend you avoid or cease listening if such discourse makes you uncomfortable. Remember, we're not here to celebrate or glorify war, but to understand it. I almost didn't make it into the military. Back in 2000, the U.S. military wasn't exactly hard up for recruits. We were at peace. I wanted to join the military because I had kids. I was 22 and my career as a punk rock star hadn't exactly worked out. I figured the military would be a slam dunk. They'll take anyone, right? Uh, well, you know, there were recruiters everywhere. Well, they were in every mall, they were in the strip malls, they were in schools, and any public event where young folks might be present, you'd find recruiters. But there was only one problem. They didn't want me. I didn't have a high school diploma. I was a dropout. Now, here's the thing. That's exactly why I wanted to join the military. If I had better prospects, I would have taken them. I was working three jobs to make ends meet. I had kids at a very young age, and without a support system in place, I hadn't had time to finish high school or even start my college education. The way I saw it, the U.S. military was the only shot I had at raising my kids in anything other than poverty. Uncle Sam could pay me a living wage today, and after I'd been in for a while, I could go to school part-time on the government's dime, and eventually, I'd end up with a fat retirement check and a master's in the field of my choice. I would have been retired from the military at age 42. That's a pretty good plan. But things started going wrong almost immediately. I wanted to be a straight-up army soldier. Infantry 11 Bravo. My old man had this boring construction job in the Navy, and I wanted to spend my days doing something more fun, like, I don't know, cleaning rifles and training to kill people. The Army recruiters told me no. They were only taking people who had ROTC training or college credit. I was like, are you kidding me? This is the Army. I I'm, I'm trying to be a grunt. I'm not trying to get into Annapolis to be an officer. I went next door to the Marine Corps recruiters and told them I wanted to be a rifleman, and they said no. They were only taking people with a high school diploma. I said, how about I come back with a GED? And they said, how about you don't? The Air Force recruiters, oh, they were polite, but they also firmly insisted I wasn't the sort of person they were looking for. Now that just left the U.S. Navy. Let's pause there and switch gears. This episode is about infantry, so let's talk about ancient warriors and the tactics that made them so successful. One of the earliest civilizations to use the infantry unit in tactical warfare uh, was the Sumerians. Their infantry units were organized into phalanx formations of eight infantrymen. This means eight warriors would stand side by side behind their shields, forming a wall to defend them. These formations would then be stacked one in front of the other, six rows deep. 
Now, the Sumerians, uh, they used both decimal and sexagesimal numerical systems. That is, much like us, they measure things in multiples of 10 and 60. 10, like we use for the metric system, and 60, like we use for time when we measure minutes and hours. Uh, now, that would lead us to believe that the Sumerian army was probably organized into groups of 60 or 120 units. I imagine that's uh, their, their division size. This might not sound like massive numbers, uh, but in ancient times, the scope of battle was much, much smaller than it would eventually become. Early battles were fought by dozens or scores of troops. Uh, these numbers wouldn't curve upwards for thousands of years until they began to peak in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Uh, but thousands of years ago, Sumerian infantry wielded spears and scythes. They wielded swords uh, of a ancient kind, and of course, those shields. The formations, especially the phalanx, uh, the tactics they used, and the regiments they created would ultimately serve as a blueprint for infantry units that succeeded them. This included the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Romans, and the Greeks. Uh, essentially, the first rule of infantry was created in Sumeria, or if not created there, then adapted there from the earliest version of the phalanx and tactical infantry. Uh, but the first rule is that the soldiers directly to your left and to your right are there to protect your flank, and you're there to protect theirs. You see, you don't fight for glory, patriotism, or victory. You fight for the person beside you, and you trust that they're going to do the same. Now, the Greeks and the Romans would, of course, add their own wrinkles to infantry, but for the most part, armies didn't stray too far from the original Sumerian model until hundreds of years later, uh, and that would be when technology such as steel folding for, like, samurai swords and gunpowder for muskets uh, would lead to a more specialized form of infantry combat. Once black powder rifles replaced spears and swords in battle, the infantry went through a massive evolution, which arguably peaked in the period between World War II and Vietnam. <laughs> uh, today, we're seeing another complete revamping of the infantry's combat role. This one started with the advent of the helicopter in warfare and has since evolved far beyond the infantry's original foot soldier origins. In their traditional role, infantry made up the bulk of nearly every military force in history. Uh, but modern infantry is starting to get a little bit smaller. They still make it the bulk of forces, but they're used in a smaller scope. Today's warriors are specialized in, in field operations. Even grunts tend to deploy directly to the mission zone, and then they leave when the mission's over. Uh, sometimes they remain, but that's mostly to function as anti-insurgency roles. As I said, this all started with helicopters. Prior to the Vietnam War, uh, if, you, if you wanted to get troops into a combat zone, they either walked or they, they, they rode in a vehicle or they showed up via a naval craft. Uh, airplanes uh, wasn't a great way to get troops into a combat zone because they don't slow down uh, enough for untrained soldiers to jump out of. And they're, of course, vulnerable when they're taking off and landing. Airborne soldiers, they can jump out of planes, but they take weeks to train. They require extra expensive gear, and they have some of the highest casualty rates of any combat group in history. This makes them ultimately unsuited for the majority of leg infantry work. Uh, but when Vietnam kicked off, U.S. forces were able to take the lessons they'd learned uh, while deploying early helicopters in Korea, 
uh, the Korean conflict, and the role of infantry was forever changed. Now, infantry divisions were able to travel with jeeps and armored personnel carriers. They had gunboats and rigid hull riverine craft and helicopters. Uh, this meant that they could be ferried into any combat situation out of a moment's notice. Uh, it also meant that they could be ferried out of any combat situation, including a medical emergency, at a moment's notice. Helicopters are well suited for carrying injured troops, whereas jets, for example, um, it's hard to get injured troops on them quickly. <laughs> um, best of all, all of these rides, the new ways to get into and out of combat, didn't require hardly any extra training. All the grunt needs to know is hang on tight and don't throw up inside the cabin. You see, that's the thing about infantry. They're always the first line of defense and offense. Beyond that, uh, when we use terms such as occupying force or peacekeeping force, the force we're talking about is almost always infantry. They're the force. They're the warriors who wait around inside hostile fire zones for action to kick off. They're usually the first and last non-civilian combat casualties in any given conflict. Let's take Lieutenant Colonel William Nold, a U.S. Army soldier who holds the sad distinction of being the last official American casualty of the Vietnam War. He died on January 27, 1973, just 11 hours before the official ceasefire uh, that ended U.S. combat involvement in Vietnam went into effect. Nold was serving his second tour of duty in Vietnam when he became the sole casualty of an enemy mortar strike on his unit's position. According to reports, he had ambitions of becoming a general and one day maybe even running for president. He died more than 8,000 miles from his home and he left a wife and four children behind. And again, he died just 11 hours before the end of official hostilities. You know, that's part of the problem of what happened in Vietnam. You hear these stories about these awful things that happen. These, uh, you know, they involve U.S. troops and drugs and fragging. Uh, fragging is the practice of killing your fellow soldiers or superior officers during wartime. It's like an intentional version of friendly fire. Uh, and in some form or another, it is existed in every war. Uh, in Vietnam, the situation for U.S. soldiers uh, was so grim that it became a ticking time bomb, especially after military and political leaders back in the States made it evident that the objective was no longer about achieving victory, but about maintaining presence until such a time as local forces could take over their own defense. Uh, that might have sounded good back in Washington, but it caused a huge morale issue for troops in Vietnam. The majority of forces there were infantry, yet only about 2.5% of those drafted or volunteering for service actually wanted to be in infantry. You couple that with the fact that the, the turnover rate was massive. If the guy next to you managed to survive, they'd be gone in less than a year anyway. This means that new leaders were coming and going all the time, and that means that there were power vacuums behind them. Uh, I'd like to read a passage from an article that was written by a journalist named Eugene Linden. Uh, they're uh, an author. I know they're still around today, um, but I'd like to preface this by saying that to the best of my knowledge, Mr. Linden never actually served. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Um, fragging 
is a macabre ritual of Vietnam in which American enlisted men attempt to murder their superiors. The word comes from the nickname for hand grenades, a weapon popular with enlisted men because the evidence is destroyed with the consummation of the crime. Fragging has ballooned into intra-army guerrilla warfare and, in parts of Vietnam, it stirs more fear among officers and NCOs than does the war with Charlie. What follows in Mr. Linden's article are descriptions of fragging in Vietnam and previous conflicts. Now, these have all the gravitas of a report on prison gangs from a reporter who's never served time, uh, but Mr. Linden does hit all the high notes. However, it does need to be said that he fails to give perspective to the problem. The reality is that, yes, fragging did happen in Vietnam. I believe it's happened in every major conflict because, as I've said on this podcast before, once you've trained someone to kill on command, you've changed them forever. Now, that doesn't mean that all warriors are would-be murderers, but low morale in a dangerous situation has consequences. See, the majority of those who served in Vietnam... They weren't drug addicts, traitors, or murderers. They didn't kill babies or do uh, many of the things that are depicted in the Hollywood films and in some of the more uh, visceral memoirs. They were just soldiers. The Vietnamese, those fighting on both sides, they were fighting for their home. And the U.S. troops, they were boys and men who'd been told they could either fight for freedom on the other side of the world or rot in prison at home. Nearly 60,000 of them would never come home again, and more than 2.6 million who did come back, uh, of those, many would return to a place that they could no longer call home. Uh, many returned to places where they were no longer welcome. I read an article on vnwarstories.com recently. It's from a guy named Jerry Prater. Uh, according to his article, he served a tour in Nam from 67 to 68 and wrote about the flight home. Uh, he talked about what it was like to, to be in these airports where there were protesters, said they called him a baby killer and a murderer. Now, it's well worth reading the whole piece, and I'll make sure I put a link to it in the immersion guide. Uh, it's called Welcome Home, Baby Killer. But I, I just wanted to share the article's conclusion. Here's what Prater writes. Welcome home, soldier. You answered when your government called. You didn't move to Canada or do something to yourself so you wouldn't be called to serve. We all paid a price a lot higher than anyone other than Vietnam veterans will ever care, understand, or appreciate. We gave up more than just the one year of our lives. We gave up our innocence and, in many cases, we lost our wives and girlfriends. We all came back with various degrees of trauma caused by what we had to do and what we saw, as well as gunshot, shrapnel, or other wounds to our bodies. We were deprived of the opportunity to live our lives in our own country and do the things we wanted to do, go to places we wanted to go, and eat the food we wanted to eat. We gave up all the pleasures of life for one year, not because we wanted to, but because our government told us we had to. Prater touches on a lot of problems with the Vietnam War model. Uh, the U.S. war model in Vietnam, I should say. The U.S. hung its infantry out there for years with no plan. That's not to say that the military didn't have a plan. They had strategic and tactical plans, and as I'll argue in a later podcast episode, they actually executed them quite well. No, I'm talking about the political plan. Soldiers who'd been trained to win wars from officers who'd seen the height of action in World War II were suddenly put in a situation where they spent every waking second either bored and barely supervised or knee-deep in blood, guts, and confusion. So what went wrong? What changed? Why was the Vietnam soldier such a different fighting creature than the World War II heroes from just a couple decades prior? Well, the answer's simple. They weren't. 
look, a soldier is a human, and we're not all that different from one another. You put 100 people in an untenable situation, and the majority of them are going to act predictably. It doesn't matter what country they're from. Let's take the U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division, a.k.a. the Big Red One. 1st uh, Infantry was formed at the onset of World War I. It's fought in just about every single conflict since, maybe even every. Uh, some of the men who served in the 1st during World War II were also there for Vietnam. So nobody changed the recipe for making soldiers. The Big Red One didn't change how they operate. Some of the men who served in the first during World War II were there for Vietnam as well, and so was their knowledge. Nobody changed the recipe for making Americans or American soldiers. Infantry is infantry. What did change were the rules of engagement and, most importantly, the goals. In World War II, U.S. troops never stopped pushing forward. The goal never changed. Win at all costs. There would be no peace until both Japan and Germany were subjugated and broken beneath the might of the Allies, and until the leaders of both nations offered a complete and total surrender. Vietnam started off that way. If you were among the first U.S. troops to arrive, or their South Vietnamese allies, you were told that your ultimate mission was to liberate the Vietnamese from communist oppression. To achieve this, you knew that combat was necessary. But that war changed after the Tet Offensive. Again, that's something we'll get into in a future episode dedicated to Vietnam. Uh, after the Tet Offensive, we stopped pushing forward and we changed our focus. There was no longer a geographical or strategic goal uh, at the political level. There was no capital to take at the military level and no victory point to secure at the, at, at the tactical level. It was just war for the sake of war until such a time as the extant forces of power decided otherwise. Now I want to stop right there so I can attempt to put this into perspective. I'd like you to imagine a 320-pound man, a veritable muscle-bound giant, shoving you with all their might. And then doing it again and again and over and over for hours and hours. Now imagine the pain. Imagine the bruises. Imagine what it's like to taste your own blood. But more importantly, I want you to imagine the violence of the impact. It's like a shotgun blast or a car crash. Every time you stand up and you get your feet underneath you, bam, this guy shoves you with all his might. Imagine that being your life. No matter what you do, it's either deal with the huge man, die, or go to prison. Okay, now imagine that this huge man is an NFL defensive lineman, you're an NFL running back, and they're the only thing standing between you and scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl. That's a different scenario. You're fighting for something different. That's the difference between fighting for survival and fighting for victory. Now, I am not trying to trivialize war or World War II by any means. What I'm saying is that we're humans. In World War II, we felt as though we were marching towards victory. In Vietnam, we waited for the conflict to end. In World War II, we knew when we were going home, when the job was done. In Vietnam, if you survived, you went home in a year. This means that the soldiers fighting in World War II on both sides of the conflict had the exact same goals. Push forward, win, achieve victory. In Vietnam, U.S. troops didn't really have a goal. Not one they could point at, not something tangible, not something they could fight for. All they could do was wait, wait for their tour to end. In other words, victory was never an option, and, and, and that only leaves survival. So tell me, what would you do to survive? What wouldn't you do to survive? What would you do to win? What wouldn't you do to win? 
for warriors on the front lines, there's not always a clean divide between the two concepts. And sometimes the only clean divide you'll get is when victory is no longer an option. We're probably running a bit long, but I, I want to finish telling you about my story. Remember, I almost didn't get into the Navy. So the Navy recruiter who ultimately enlisted me uh, was actually one of my old man's buddies. They'd served together in, of course, nepotism in the military. They go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Um, but even then, once I arrived at the MEP Center, the Military Entrance and Processing Station in New Orleans, Louisiana, I was told once again that I wasn't qualified for service and they couldn't take me. My recruiter had to call in some personal favors, and in doing so, I can only presume that a more qualified person than me was sent away from service. You know, I often wondered, did that person who I, uh, whose place I took, did they take that as a sign and walk away forever, or, or did they just come back like a month later and get in? Uh, anyway, I got lucky, and the Navy decided it was going to take me after all. One moment I'm getting ready to leave with no contract, my head hanging low as I try to figure out what the hell's wrong with me that I'm so crappy even the military won't take me, and then minutes later I'm signing a six-year contract. Seven years later, after I'd re-enlisted, <laughs> I'd find myself standing on the aft deck of a Navy frigate in the Caribbean Sea, pointing a shotgun at an emaciated woman and her husband, uh, while a Navy corpsman pried a dead infant from her arms. Uh, me and the other watchstanders had to yell at her. It was, it was awful. It was weird. You know, the family had come aboard our ship after we'd forced them to. We intercepted their vessel. It was a, a migrant boat that was in distress. There was over 200 people on the boat, and by all appearances, it shouldn't have had more than 30 or 40. I don't know how many of them died. Uh, before we got there, I know a few died after we did. I mean, they'd left their country. They paid a coyote. Each and every one of them had paid a coyote to smuggle them to the U.S., and we caught them not too far, uh, brought them on our ship, and then turned them to the nearest country and dropped them off. And, and I assure you that country was not the, the country they came from. You know, a lot of people probably died before we found them and it's good that we found them and we probably saved some lives, but that mom, she didn't want to let go. And I didn't know what to do. Nobody did. So the watch captain told us, uh, it's a health and safety concern. We need to separate them. So we did. That's war. You know, you find yourself doing things you never thought you or anyone else would have to do. I think about days like that when I read about the stories from the soldiers in Vietnam. You know, Vietnam was before my time. Uh, I hadn't even been born yet. Uh, but I feel like all warriors are connected by a threat of violence. The violence we do, the violence we witness, and the violence that's done to us. So what turned out to be one of the worst days I've ever experienced in my life, uh, that was like Tuesday for a Vietnam veteran or that is to say, it was like any other given day. They must have saw hundreds or thousands of horrific things like that because they were drafted and told to. And, and, and the, the Vietnamese on both sides fighting for their home, it's unimaginable what they had to live with. You know, as of November 2022, there are still 1,581 Americans who served in Vietnam listed as missing in action or prisoners of war. During the conflict, approximately 58,000 U.S. troops died. Another 90 to 140,000 Allied Vietnamese soldiers died with them. On the Viet Cong and NVA side, experts believe somewhere around 1.1 million troops were killed. That pales. All of that pales next to the civilian toll, with about 2 million total Vietnamese non-combatant casualties reported 
during the entirety of the conflict. Nobody ever wins a war. I hope you'll join us next week. We're going to talk about perception versus reality when it comes to war and warriors. Until then, I wish you fair winds and following seas. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, it is important to seek qualified assistance. In the U.S., call 911 if you need police, fire, or emergency medical assistance. Call 988 if you need to speak to a trained crisis counselor who can help with mental health-related distress. You can also text 988 to reach a mental health crisis specialist via SMS. If you are a veteran or are concerned about one, call 988, then press 1 to speak with a responder qualified to support veterans. You can also text 838-255 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. If you have access to the web, visit www.ptsd.va.gov for the U.S. Veterans Administration's online resources related to PTSD.